0: To the term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington, and joining me from New York is co host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie?
1: Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Pretty good. I feel like, you know, it's been a, an exciting short week. It's been an <laughs> for, eventful for everyone. Week, certainly. Eventfuls. That's, a good, that's a good word for it. <laughs> uh, obviously, yesterday was the inauguration, which uh, seemed to go off with, you know, fairly smoothly.
0: Unless you were in the Supreme Court building, in which case you would have had a momentary scare after a bomb threat was called into the Supreme Court. They, I just want to assure everyone, they checked the building, they cleared the grounds, and there was no even evacuation required. But it's just like what this era that we live in, you know, with the political violence and the threats, it's it's just scary.
1: Yeah, it 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 was that that was a obviously sad to hear about, but I'm glad that there's obviously nothing that, that happened. Um, I'm not even sure the justices were in because at the inauguration, I know not all the justices attended.
0: Right. So the the Supreme court confirmed the the bomb threat, um, in an email to me, just as kind of the, uh, justices were gathering at the U S Capitol building for the inauguration. Um, Three justices decided to stay home: Justices Breyer, Alito, and Thomas. Um, Due to the COVID pandemic, they didn't want to, you know, be exposed to large crowds and things. Understandably so, I would say.
1: I get that. I also wouldn't want to be out in the cold. Uh, (laughs) I I will say, Tom Hanks had me very concerned. He was—he looked freezing. Yeah, he was not wearing a coat.
0: I would have I taken the burn route. Good idea. The, the hand knit mittens <laughs> and the the big Gore-Tex jacket. Um, so in any event, yeah, those 3 Briar, Alito, and Thomas—stayed uh, home or wherever it is that they were. I, I I joked yesterday that I think that's probably the only thing that those three <laughs> have ever agreed on because <laughs> that's usually not a trio that you see in in written opinions. But at least when it comes to the pandemic, they seem to be in agreements. But six three. Um, it was a six three. It was a six three on. court.
1: On whether to attend. Yes.
0: <laughs> um, and and obviously two justices played outsized roles in the proceedings.
1: Yes. Uh, so the chief justice obviously uh, swore in newly elected President Joe Biden. Uh, and Justice Sonia Sotomayor swore in Vice President Kamala Harris.
0: Oh, you did the thing that Sotomayor did. I did. It's it's Kamala. I I said it wrong. (laughs) You were thinking of her pronunciation. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's a tough one. It's a hard one. I've been listening to too much. Yeah. I apologize. Kamala Harris.
0: There we go. Yeah, So it was an eventful day for the Supreme Court justices. They did not have oral arguments uh, on Wednesday due to the inauguration, and they didn't also on Monday, but they did weigh into some pretty interesting cases on Tuesday. We'll be getting to that in a minute. But first, there's some interesting personnel changes happening at the u.s solicitor general's office now that biden's in office now you want to break it down for us
1: so yes now uh biden has actually named a new acting solicitor general elizabeth prelogger uh who is a former cooley llp uh partner she um kind of a, a big name i feel already in, in 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 the supreme court bar she uh she formerly worked in the Solicitor General's office for, for a bit um, and then actually left to work under Special Counsel Robert Mueller and helped write his final report to Congress. She's also a former clerk um, to the late Justice Ginsburg and to Justice Kagan.
0: So she's kind of been all over the map. You know, U.S. Solicitor General's office, arguing cases there, private practice, but also the, she, she helped write the Mueller report. This is kind
1: of a... Yeah, she, she's been a big name. So I'm I'm not I'm actually not super surprised to see her named as acting solicitor general. I actually spoke with her last summer uh, when we were putting together a story about the gender imbalance at the Supreme Court bar. And, you know, when I found out she was named, all I could think about was how she, I remember her telling me how, you know, she thinks that there needs to be more gender balance among the top two roles in the solicitor general's office to help push change in the industry. You know, historically. Justice Kagan is the only one who, you know, has filled one of the top two roles at the right. the, just- the Solicitor General's office. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if her appointment now spurs more women in the ranks of the Solicitor General's office and in the Supreme Court bar itself as she, you know, hoped for just a few months before being named acting Solicitor General.
0: Yeah, and I know that there's also some hope that, you know, Biden's permanent pick for Solicitor General as opposed to Acting Solicitor General will also be a woman to kind of bring that uh, gender parity to the office. But also, you know, she's going to have she's going to be playing a pretty central role in, you know, the, the federal government, the Biden administration's positions before the, uh, the Supreme Court and, and could be instrumental in changing course from any positions that were taken over the last four years under the Trump administration. So we're going to be closely watching um, that office in the weeks to come.
1: Agreed. And uh, I know I'll be uh, interested to see just how she fills out the role. Uh, But turning to what happened at the Supreme Court this week, uh, Jimmy, I know there's been some some big arguments and you have one in particular you want to talk about.
0: Yeah, it's the first one that we heard on Tuesday. So there were only two cases argued this week, both on Tuesday due to the other events. The first one I want to talk about has to do with the FCC. There are two consolidated cases um, that both deal with the same question of whether the uh, Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, uh, can relax media cross-ownership rules. So, for many years, decades, even um, the FCC had rules restricting uh, the amount in the ownership of multiple different legacy, you know, media outlets in one local market. So, if, for instance, if you're a broadcast station in you know uh, Tallahassee or something like that you couldn't also own the local newspaper and the reason why the FCC had those rules at the time was to kind of promote diversity of viewpoint and also to promote um you know women and minority ownership of some of these media outlets to just kind of serve the public interest a little bit better in providing these multiple points of view so recently, in recent years, the FCC has sought to kind of relax those rules and get rid of some of those restrictions because of what they say have been, has been the changing media landscape um, with the advent of the internet and the proliferation of online news, for instance. They say that these restrictions are essentially outdated and don't really serve any function anymore. And so in 2017, after years of litigation, we're finally able to chuck some of these old restrictions by the wayside.
1: So so basically, Netflix and regulations killing the radio stations. (laughs) Something like that. Something like that. I know there was a big push for deregulation all all around um, under the Trump administration. And there was a a new conservative majority, I believe, on the FCC when this took place uh, back in 2017. So figuring this has been working its way up. The courts to the Supreme Court. Why? Why is the Supreme Court interested in this?
0: Well, so the Third Circuit essentially said, "I understand your arguments about how the market has evolved past the point of needing these restrictions um, for you know ownership of different media outlets in these local markets, but there's one thing you didn't do well enough, and that is you know explain the effect and look into the effect that this that relaxing these rules is going to have on uh, female and minority ownership." Of some of these media outlets, um, and until you do that, you can't actually, you know, relax the rules as as you want to. And so, you know, the day the day before the inauguration, the, uh, uh, the FCC, represented by the U.S. Solicitor General's Office, um, you know, made the argument that the FCC has full authority to relax these rules, and that the, you know, the ham that they're being hamstrung essentially by the federal courts of, you know, a deregulatory. Uh, initiative that they've been trying to do for years
1: yeah my understanding also was that the review that took place was a like congressional or law mandated review that they have to do every few years Um, and there's nothing in you know calling for that review that tells them they have to you know take into consideration diversity and you know and this particular issue it's a complicated issue though further than i think what i'm you know, kind of laying out here, yeah. but you know, how how did the the justices take this?
0: So the justices really wanted to know what the FCC's legal obligations actually were. Were and Chief Justice Roberts in particular, he was he was really focused on what role um, the consideration of diverse ownership of media should have really played in the decision making process. So he says, basically, you know, what if the administration's or the FCC's priorities just shifted, and they no longer prioritize uh, women and minority ownership um, in terms of this regulatory scheme. What then do they still have to go through the motions of, you know, uh, you know, undertaking this review of what it would actually do to that um, uh, diverse ownership of these media outlets? And that's something that the court is was really grappling with throughout the hearing: is just what legal obligation the FCC had to had to undertake. Um, to, to, to look into these points. But we heard the FCC and indeed an attorney for the broadcasters really defending this deregulatory initiative. Um, you know, in, in his opening argument, an attorney for the federal government said that the profusion of new media outlets, particularly through cable and the internet, alleviated the viewpoint diversity concerns that had originally justified the restrictions. Um, And the FCC further found, he said, that the rule deserved the public interest by preventing economically efficient combinations that would provide consumers better broadcast service. And we also heard an attorney for the broadcasters say something like, you know, a local broadcaster could buy a failing newspaper and get it back up and running, whereas under the old ownership restrictions so often (laughs) whereas under the old ownership restrictions they wouldn't have been able to do that and he said something interesting as well which is that you know amazon gets to own the washington post today and nobody thinks that's the end of democracy so it's surely not the end of democracy if a local broadcaster can buy a local newspaper and keep it alive so at the end of the day it sounds kind of like a media story more than a (laughs) you know a, a legal story
1: I was actually just thinking how I kind of wish we had one of our uh, maybe media reporters here to kind of discuss the impact further than I I think you and I can pontificate on. But we do have coming up for uh, talking about the next argument, our senior energy reporter to discuss uh, the other argument that happened on Tuesday.
0: Yeah, so we're going to have on senior energy reporter for Law 360, Keith Goldberg, and he's going to talk about a really interesting case that took place after the FCC arguments on Tuesday. So this case is about how climate change litigation actually really works, right? So we've all seen the headlines lately about people running to court to hold some of these major companies accountable for their role in burning fossil fuels and contributing to climate change. But what does that actually look like? You know, Does it belong in state or federal court? And so the justices of the Supreme Court on Tuesday weighed in on one of these very important preliminary questions in climate change litigation that senior Law 360 energy reporter Keith Goldberg is going to break down for us. Welcome to the show, Keith. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Jimmy. Of course. So before we get into the kind of nitty-gritty of this particular case, can you just back up and tell us how we got here? Why exactly is the Baltimore mayor and city council suing these energy and oil companies?
2: Well, Baltimore is alleging that these energy companies for decades um, concealed the harms and risks, particularly the climate change harms and risks, of promoting and using fossil fuels, their, their products. And what they're doing is they're suing under uh, state public nuisance laws to try and have these energy companies pay for infrastructure damage and repairs due to climate change.
1: That seems like a pretty novel approach that they're taking with the nuisance laws. How did this case get to the Supreme Court, um, especially since you mentioned there are a couple percolating? You know, Why are the justices interested in this case?
2: Well, the justices appear to be interested in, in a more narrow procedural issue here. Uh, last year, the Fourth Circuit upheld a lower court decision sending Baltimore's case back to state court. And in doing so, they rejected the energy company's argument that they were – that the case belonged in federal court because they were at times working for the federal government uh, under military or other government contracts. And the court also said that that was the only ground they could review a, a remand order. Now, other circuits have, other circuit courts have reached similar conclusions – However, there is a split on the issue with the Seventh Circuit, and that appears to have gotten the justice's attention. It,
0: it, it's kind of interesting because on the one hand, this obviously is, like you say, a narrow procedural issue, but it goes to the very salient and significant fact of where this case is being litigated, whether it's in state or federal court. Now, it seems obvious that the energy companies are pretty desperate to keep this case out of state court and being litigated in federal court. Can you tell me a little bit about why and why this is so relevant?
2: Well, a big reason is the Supreme Court back in 2011, in a climate change case known as AEP versus Connecticut, ruled that federal common law claims such as nuisance um, related to greenhouse gas emissions were displaced by the Clean Air Act. And the EPA's regulation of of greenhouse gases. So, a big reason the energy companies want this case to st- these cases to stay in federal court is because the cases would likely be dismissed in light of the Supreme Court's decision in AEP.
0: Right. Those those federal common law claims would be precluded by the, the Clean Air Act. Correct. Uh, seems seems pretty straightforward. So, how did uh, oral arguments go on Tuesday? What, what were the justices, you know, most interested in?
2: Well, the justices were not really that interested in the energy companies' arguments that they should go ahead and determine whether Baltimore's case belongs in federal or state court. Um, only a, a handful of justices only asked a handful of questions on that issue. And one justice in particular, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, remarked that it would be fairly aggressive for the court to reach that decision in this case. Um, They mostly focused on the sort of procedural issue of what is the scope of appellate courts reviewing remand orders.
1: So it sounds like we're going to get a fairly narrow ruling in this case one way or the other. Um, Do you expect the court to continue confronting these questions about climate-related litigation?
2: I think it's inevitable. Um, There are over 20 cases similar to Baltimore's that are currently making their way through the state court and the federal court. Um, The energy companies have already petitioned the Supreme Court to review several circuit court decisions that have aligned with the Fourth Circuit's decision. Um, As long as the Supreme Court has left the door open for these types of suits to be filed under state law, they will eventually have to answer the question of where do these cases belong and what's their future.
0: Right. And even even if it's a narrow ruling, right? I mean, it still could be relevant to some of these other cases. If it gives these energy companies, you know, it opens up the grounds of which to essentially keep trying to get the case, keep trying to keep the case in federal court. It's it's a at, narrow procedural issue, but it's important.
2: Absolutely. At, at the very least... It will delay the resolution of these cases and as well as the decision to keep them in federal court or state court, especially if the justices side with the energy companies.
0: All right. Well, when that deluge of, you know, climate change litigation does come before the court, once again, uh, we'll be sure to have you on, Keith, and, and break it all down for us. Thanks again for, for joining us today.
2: Great. Thanks for having me.
1: So I think that just about does it for us today, Jimmy.
2: I. Th- was that it? surely it. there was that's else.
1: it <laughs> well I, I, I'm sure you know there's others we could probably be here for an hour just talking about everything that you know happening in DC but uh, we will be back next week no arguments but there's uh, a conference tomorrow and an orders list on the horizon and we'll see what news uh, pops out of those
0: potentially we could see some opinions the court hasn't announced any opinion days but you know that, that changes on a day to day basis so stay tuned
1: We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, our special guest, Keith Goldberg, and our contributing reporter this week, Kelsey Griffiths. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high-court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.